Hi, I'm David. I'm the Dungeon Master. Hi, I'm Paul. Sherlock Gnomes. This is Rob. Playing Talon. This is Sean. Who plays Thaddeus. And this is Josiah, a.k.a. Azir. I want to thank everyone for listening and give a special shout out to all our Patreons out there. Uh, we have a lot of fun making the show for you all, and the truth is, we'd make it even if no one listened. With that said, your feedback and contributions go a long way towards encouraging us to find even more ways to embarrass ourselves for your entertainment. If you get value out of the show, we ask that you think about giving a little value back. One way you can do that is by donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash roll to hit. If you'd rather get some loot in exchange for your support, check out our store at shop.spreadshirt.com slash the commentist where you can get a roll to hit t-shirt of all things. Of course, if you can't afford to part with even a single copper piece, we totally understand. Everyone can help out by rating us on iTunes or sharing the podcast with your friends and network. Thanks for your consideration. And now the show. Welcome to Roll the Hit Season 2 Wrap-Up Show. Just wanted to start by giving David a hand for an incredible journey this season. Yeah. Right now, I have to edit around that. It's peaking. Uh, now you have to edit in actual like thunderous applause, <laughs> thunder wave. People Make cheering. Love uh, as always, we had a blast making the show for you this season, and uh, we're always so happy to hear how much you enjoy listening to it. I also want to give a really special shout out to all of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we're really humbled by the support you've given us, and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, as always, if you'd like to join uh, the Patreon subscribers, you can find it at patreon.com. Slash roll the hit. All right, let's get started. Uh, we've got a lot of feedback and questions from you throughout the season, so I've tried to structure this conversation around a lot of what you've sent us. So let's kick it off as we did last year by just going around the table, saying your name, your character, and uh, for Paul, what the inspiration behind his character was, and for the rest of us who had PCs, how, if your approach to the character this season changed at all. I, I guess I'll start. This is Paul, um, a.k.a. Sherlock Gnomes. Wait, that's not how you say it. <laughs> well, that's, that's, how I, that's how I said it towards the end of the campaign. I, really, I, at the, I remember in like the very first episode, because we listened to the first episode yeah. pretty recently, yeah. I was like, I think it was the first you episode, I said, I said, everyone has to have a character voice. Yeah. And my character voice, if there was like a graph, it would just slowly go down. Um, uh, I'm blaming that on all you for Fair uh, for not having yeah. a, like a character voice. But the inspiration behind Sherlock Gnomes was literally just I thought of that pun and I thought it was a really good pun, and then I just created a character off of that. Um, I, I wanted him to be more of like a private eye type detective versus a Sherlock Holmes type detective, just because I thought it would be sweet if he could dual wield crossbows, which apparently is not legal in Dungeons and Dragons anyways but, um, <laughs> but that was that, that's it that's basically it um, that Wait, does Sherlock Holmes not have two crossbows that he <laughs> like, I, I, thought, I thought that was canon <laughs> um, and yeah I kind of uh, I introduced him last at the end of my campaign as kind of like the doofy detective that wasn't very good at his job but he had, I, he, I feel like he's gotten better I think he's gotten better <laughs> yeah, yeah. he'll have to apply to Dubs again if, <laughs> if Scandron is still staked well he's got that extra what was it 100 years that he was stuck in the uh, 30 years oh, 30 years that <laughs> he was stuck yeah yeah so he's got a lot of experience yeah. now but maybe he stopped. Maybe he stopped. Uh, he retired. <laughs> there'll have to be. There'll be a mini campaign with those twenty-five years in real time. So this is Sean. I played Thaddeus, the Paladin. So uh, going on to season two, uh, I don't. I don't know if I changed the way I played it, but I will you say, brought on the hits, man. <laughs> I mean, going. I mean, uh, obviously there was there's a major change at the end. If you haven't heard. I got a shield. That, that was a huge <laughs> yeah. change in how I played. Do you the have game, a religion, holy symbol yet? No, I still don't have a freaking holy symbol. Did we you went to the, the church whole, the whole season without. So I had I realized that there you know there's certain spells you can't use unless you have the um, the material, and I didn't have those, so I had to pick and choose what I actually used in that situation. But it, it ended up being okay because typically I was being more offensive and healing like cure wounds and stuff. You had I that could badass do. sword the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the whole not time. the whole time. Well, like, yeah. Literally the first. 
quarter of the campaign. And yeah, they and then, lost in the and then mysteriously were lost forever. <laughs> and then Damn the it. DM decided that the items that I just kind of created out of nowhere were too OP, so he <laughs> yeah. found a way to get rid of them. <laughs> Which is funny, too, because it, it went from me being uh, really strong, and I had a really uh, a pretty high AC. I think it was 17 or 18, to all of a sudden having a really low AC, where I was at the start, after I lost some of my stuff, I think it was 13, and at the high, even with the shields, I think it's 15. Yeah, you lost your tank status. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> but I still went in the front. I still had a lot of HP, so I was cool with that. Uh, this is Josiah. I played at Zier. Um, apparently, I'm a, the bloodthirsty monk. <laughs> I guess I stayed that way. You look at my character sheet, it is chaotic, good, and obviously I have the drow uh, bloodlust in me. I, I tried to manage that, balance it, and, and also... I don't know why, for some reason, you guys would always look to me to make decisions. So I, <laughs> I think I, it's because that's what I do in real life. <laughs> so you're my, I, you're I my kinda, older brother. You're Talon's <laughs> older brother. So I kind of well, yeah. For for play purposes, it makes sense to come from Talon to look towards that's that right. Zero. But that's right. um, uh, so I, I kind of embraced it a little bit towards uh, mid season. I think I just kind of threw my hands up and said, "Okay, that's what we're doing." Um, for for good or for bad. So if we screwed up a lot, it's probably my fault because <laughs> I basically just flipped a coin in my brain. <laughs> uh, this is Rob playing Talon, the sorcerer, and I think uh, I think I got a little bit more like Azir with the whole uh, bloodthirsty rage. <laughs> I, I killed a lot more. Like I think first season, I was om- knocking out almost every time and pulling punches, and I don't think I did that at all. I think my whole monk thing just kind of went out the window. Well, I still think monks can kill. I mean, just like a paladin can kill, right? It's it's whatever your code is. I, I so think if you're it, out to get get evil, then and you, you get are it. oath of vengeance, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So it's so it, it actually worth maybe. I think if we had talent's been corrupted by you, mofos. <laughs> if we had a transcript of the whole season, I think burn it would probably be the most repeated. <laughs> oh, I got a little bit more chaotic with my fire magic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, let's turn it over and talk to our wonderful DM for this season. Uh, so let's just start off. What was it like to DM this motley crew of characters? Uh, I was interesting. Um, <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> uh, and, and I thank you for, for your time. Um, <laughs> I'll get my coat. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself through this experience? <laughs> uh, DMing for you guys was, was actually great because I kind of uh, I threw away the playbook earlier on than I thought I would. Um, I, if you look at my t- number of pages for things I wrote, the first session, running through Scandron session, lasts 23 pages of, <laughs> of, of notes. And towards the end, it was just like these cliff notes of like, yeah, do this, do this. I literally have a note where it says, thing happens with happens spelled wrong. That's a little, <laughs> little I care towards the end. Um, but what I loved about that way of DMing is that it really brought me back to improvisation, which I realized I really enjoyed in this game. I did that scavenging thing where you just got random loot, and I realized how much fun it is just to get random loot. Mm-hmm. When you move on to the desert, there's more random stuff. And by the end, I had that 500 trinket table yeah. <laughs> as, that I, I mixed in with magic items. So just to give you guys tons of stuff, and you guys helped me build a world that, was, uh, that had this background of magic that I think is very interesting. Because if you saw my campaign, a lot of my campaign kind of deals in realism with just magic as the underlying faculty. In fact, the final big boss is not magical at all. The final big boss yeah, is actually yeah, uh, that's right. moving away from the system. He's a complete artificer. Right. He uses signs to create the magic. So it was just an interesting world that I ended up building by accident of let's make a realistic campaign based on intrigue and add some magic to it. It's, it's funny that the first thing that you said about like how you used to prepare a lot more because I remember the first like four sessions that we did it would always be like guys this campaign th- this session's gonna last like two minutes and then three <laughs> hours later you'd be like guys I'm only one page into my 24 <laughs> pages that I've prepared. That's <laughs> no, true. So my first session I wrote all of all of Scandron Crumbling and all of the Mayor's Castle and we the first session we got through half of going through the city <laughs> then we got through the other half of going through the city and then we got the mayor so one episode I thought would last like 45 mis- minutes lasted three different sessions so uh, one of our listeners Matt Much uh, wrote in that the volume of detail and in- intricacy is very impressive uh, and the twists and turns leave me only wishing I could DM as well as you uh, he, wanted, he asked and you kind of addressed this already how much you prepared and how much you ended up 
ad-libbing. Yeah, I called you the most, I quote this, are you just the most astonishing ad-libber ever? um, Yes. (laughs) Not in this case, but uh, separately. A lot of what I wrote was because I wanted exact numbers of what things to happen. You can think of more, the planning I did was basically I made an intricate choose-your-own-adventure, and I wanted to see how you guys approach things, and then based on that, uh, other things happened. I should point out, I wrote a ton of stuff uh, per session, but I was constantly revising it day to day. You could almost argue that each time we met and had a session, I was basing it on the previous session. So I had this, I had a unified idea. I mean, I can even discuss this. I wrote this idea during a, during a storm in like February of 2015. I wrote the original outline of it. And the original outline is literally, Aureus equals old man long given up, but hates parent from previous battle. <laughs> Seidel, new guy, wants to kill young Hatterai to draw out old parent. Seidel wants Perrin alive to kidnap because he is still attuned to a moonblade. Seidel believes he can harvest Perrin's alive soul. And then beyond that, it goes, Normal day. Disaster. Something blew up. Helping people. Get to mayor. Mob forms. Team's old town destroyed. Hear about work. Adventures along the way. Theraval sends you to possible death. Uh, and that sums up the season. <laughs> so as, the, uh, as you can see, everything in between that, not entirely improvised in person, but definitely improvised from the previous events. The train thing, which I actually said was one of the most favorite parts, the train part was added as an afterthought yeah. when I got home realizing, well, my, my original plan for you guys would be knocked out in the mayor's castle, and then you'd wake up in like a pile of dead and knocked out bodies and just mm. move on to uh, finding work. Rob woke up because he rolled a natural 20 on a yeah, saving throw. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the blue drake came and saved you, which was also all improvised. The blue drake saving you guys. Um, oh, that's funny. And then I realized, well, I guess we'll put him on a train because trains are interesting. And then I wrote, <laughs> <laughs> so like trains became that thing where it's like, all right, and then there's going to be this backstory with the Sucker's Incubus, yep. and then you're going to get lost in the desert, and I'm going to make you, there are going to be nine and a half episodes worth of desert because <laughs> I, I want you guys to be pissed off. I want you guys to be very upset about the desert and feel this exhaustion um, in both your characters and your real life. Uh, Success. <laughs> And it, it was just a wild ride of things I added in, things that changed the order, all the stuff. So to get back to the question, which I haven't answered at all, uh, I definitely wrote unique lines of dialogue because I love to get dialogue exactly correct. As far as describing what happened, um, that really was just off the top of my head. I, I do want to just jump in there. There's uh, a few lines <laughs> that were very memorable for me that typically... So there was one, one set, and this goes into like some of my favorite parts we'll just talk about later, but one of my favorite sequences when we were going to the train, uh, I think there were three or four characters with different yeah. voices who were talking to each other about seeing us pass by. And you threw that together. That was not edited afterwards. Like <laughs> yeah. that's how fast David delivered that whole sequence. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was awesome. And then uh, I think my favorite quotes came from X the Mystic, <laughs> uh, and probably my favorite PC ca- NPC character throughout the entire season was X the Mystic. David. A side note: David is not only a great ad libber, also a great mad libber. <laughs> <laughs> Which is how he wrote this campaign. He just <laughs> he put in, filled in the blanks. Was like, and then. Thaddeus <laughs> went picked, to the... picked up his smelly smell. <laughs> <laughs> so to the point you were discussing earlier about how uh, you kind of had to write episodes as we went uh, was there ever or I guess there probably definitely was probably definitely was probably definitely uh, was. there definitely was but at, were there points where we just completely derailed everything like me waking up Talon waking up at that one point where you're like well shit now they can't he just doesn't die so were there other points where you were like okay I expect them to do this and then we were just like nope not even going to think about that you guys didn't derail anything I don't think I mean I, I'm not sure how much you could have caused disaster because I no, think outside of like pretty much letting the brown mold wreak havoc over Scandron. Uh, you know, I mean, destroying the, the Thrycurrent. That was supposed to happen. <laughs> the easiest one to talk about is, is in the, the first, uh, almost the first episode, is when you killed Nero, who was supposed <laughs> to be oh, yeah. the <laughs> You jerk. <laughs> I told you, I was just a lot more liberal with my fire spells. <laughs> no, and the mayor, the mayor is interesting, since it was the first major curveball to what I thought I'd properly written. Yeah. Um, I, knew you had, I knew you had to leave town, and the catalyst behind that was going to you guys be knocked out, as I said. So the two options I assumed were, one, you side with Nero... And decide the mayor deserves to die. <laughs> the townsfolk come. The townsfolk come in since they heard the commotion and think that you killed the mayor because he's dead, and they run you out of town. Or you say that the mayor should live, but you accidentally left the microphone, the megaphone on, so all Nero sang because Nero, yeah, yeah, Nero yeah. monologues what the mayor did. 
Um, so then the town hears the mayor's treason. They come up. You know, Nero says, they're with the mayor. And they go, oh, if you're with the mayor, you're against Scandron. You're against Scandron. You're against us. And they yeah. go and, and kill you. Um, but instead, you killed Nero, who was supposed to be the the actual <laughs> exposition of why the mayor did this. <laughs> so instead, the mayor, for no good reason, explains why he did this. <laughs> and then cowers out and says, oh, they're trying to kill me. And yeah. they knock you out. And then you also woke up. So just stuff that... I uh, just ruined everything in the first part. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... To, to be fair, I mean, rule zero of DMing is that you can do whatever you want. So right. I could have just said, no, your fireball doesn't kill Nero. Right. But right. I tried to be fair to all of you, and I, I wanted you to... Dungeons & Dragons is the only actual open-world game that there actually really is. So I, I didn't want to d- deprive you guys of that and yeah. go, this would be more interesting, so I'm going to put you on rails. It's much more interesting to have all of these types of weird twists and turns come brought on by everyone's free range of motion and actions to yeah. create this game. What would you have... Because uh, I feel like one of the big plot points was that when we first meet Theravol, he thinks we are Perrin's son. But I feel like that only... Were, or well, in our game, that worked because we were wearing the same stuff as they were. Did you just assume that you're like, they're going to take their loot? There was no way in hell you guys were going to take that, that loot. So things I put out that, that I, I knew you would do um, were, were always there. I, there's another one that I knew you would do. Um, so I knew Talon would would hit on Jane Allen and and and, um, and, and light a cigarette. Like there are things I put out that that were just baiting. Yeah, that yeah. were completely baiting you. That I, I knew you would take you and your pecs, Thaddeus, <laughs> had to ruin my advances. <laughs> so in my notes, I even go and have an. an uh, I specifically say. Um, if, if Talon fails his charisma check against Jane Allen, because if I just let you do it, you get suspicious. If I let you roll the charisma check. So if you fail yeah, the charisma yeah. check, I, I had written in there, Talon makes an ass of himself but comes off as charming. So it would have gone something like, you roll a six, but I still say, your awkwardness is charming in its own regard as you trip over your feet and knock the pipe out of a woman's hands. And you, you pick it up and, and try to dust it off, but all you're doing is flicking, flicking the tobacco pieces out of a bowl. Your sweaty palms require a couple snaps to get the flame working. <laughs> So no matter what, you're going to be able to have Jane Allen uh, trick you. Nice. That's because Jane Allen was the succubus trickster. So things that I knew you would do, I just had faith that this would happen. Yeah. Um, there was nothing that I had to... You know me so well, David. <laughs> <laughs> there was really nothing I had to shoehorn in to do. The only things I think that I had to shoehorn in were uh, at the very end, I desperately needed you guys to take Boren with you to the, oh, the final right. battle. Because yeah. um, you guys actually missed... Plenty of companions from NBC opportunities that, that I actually really wanted to give you. Um, I would have let you try to get the blue Drake back if you wanted to try oh, to find shit. her. I would have let you huh. take an ex the mystic. We talked about that. We did talk about that. Why didn't we do that? Um, a big known crossroads was going to be whether or not you were going to get Theraval's daughter back. And you guys did screw that up. You, you guys mentioned Theraval. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that was my bad. <laughs> so we could have actually saved You her. absolutely could have. Oh, I, 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 I'd written the scenario where you save Theraval's daughter. Nice. That's why in the basement, in the basement, there's a, a uh, basilisk. So basilisks turn people into stone by looking at them, right? right. So their stomach acid can, can go and help uh, remove the stone, because basilisks uh, don't eat stone. Yeah, like they I'm need pretty to eat sure. The we never would have figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would have, as in trying to figure it out, I was going to have one of Extimistic's quotes is, no one carves statues of frightened warriors. If you see one, keep your eyes closed and your ears open. I think you might have said that one, actually. Oh, so yeah. he does yeah. say it to you? Yeah. So he would have helped you out by, like, he would have been the classic, like, well, I'm just going to help in the background. He would have taken a book from the bookshelf, because Seidel had an impressive bookshelf, yeah. about basilisk uh, anatomy. Um, and in that place that you did visit, you, you guys visited the downstairs basement that had yeah. the locked up animals and you guys yeah. thought, I, I can't do anything here and left. And you were right. There was nothing you really could do there. Mm-hmm. The basilisk was the one in the big, there was one cage that was completely yeah. locked, like the, uh, I was imagining the velociraptor in Jurassic Park, that completely secluded cage. So that's what you could have done. Saving Theravel's daughter obviously gets you Theravel on his side and Theravel would have absolutely helped you oh, cool. um, in the final thing. Uh, z- and, and we could have married her? <laughs> Zargila I'm already, I'm already married. Sorry, man. <laughs> uh, the other dwarf that rescued him with Boren was Zargila, and he gave you an invitation to visit him in, in Nalakun if you needed him. He would have definitely helped you out. No, an NPC that I was hoping you guys would, for some reason, get, you guys almost did it, was at the Haunted Fairgrounds. The ghosts? The, the ghosts who are complaining that they're playing boring checkers, <laughs> and there was a checkerboard there to buy. If you'd give it to them, they would have promised to help you in your long quest, so you would have probably said something like, please Help us defeat Aureus. Upon finding Aureus wasn't that bad, yeah. the ghost would have definitely came 
and helped you. And I tried to do this by making you get your ass kicked by Sedel and me making it very clear that Sedel was going to kick your ass no matter what. But then your guys' plan was just, let's just try it again. <laughs> Maybe this time it'll be better. He's only more powerful, and now he knows now he knows who you are. So We, we had Boren with us this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like in the second half of the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, and Shuffles. There are a lot of pregnant pauses in for... that in, in that episode that are cut out of Boren like, not leaving. You guys want to leave, and I go, well, as you guys try to leave, Boren's still crying, <laughs> until eventually one of you says, Boren, you want to come along? So yeah, so uh, that was definitely the crossroads that would have changed a lot of what I'd written later on, was Theraval and Theraval's daughter helping you, and a final quest. You guys ended the season with um, kind of, not really failure, but without what you set out to do in the first place which was stop the brown mold (laughs) (laughs) you you guys set out to make money and then it was well Theravold promised us a lot of things because he has massive connections Um, I'll quote Paul who said uh, doesn't feel great I feel like we killed a lot of people. <laughs> so we should try to get a body count for this whole season. <laughs> there might be this feeling of failure, but it was just the, the nature of the episode that uh, I'm not going to write. Writing an ending that makes it a perfect, happy, heroic ending would violate what I just discussed about, which is I want to make this completely open world scenario. Um, so I think it's interesting that you, you guys really don't know what's going to happen next. You guys went to Nalakund with the body of Boren. Um, and you guys were visited by Alfred, and who knows what's next? Were the Crimson Forge? Were they bad guys, or are we just dicks? They were. They were completely good guys. They were like you guys. <laughs> they were but on their way to find. What things. were they doing? They were attacking Seidel's minions, who were dressed up as commoners. Oh, okay. remember in the turnover carriage there was a thing of oh. salt and two copper pieces, which you guys found out is the spell components for for gentle repose, which is to keep dead bodies from from decaying. So their whole plan was to. Uh, like stop them there capture Hatterai they were kind of having trouble with them and then you guys showed up and you guys kind of wiped out everyone um, so that's <laughs> so what we do there. and on that point what I love about the Crimson Forge is that Crimson means red and a forge fish is also known as a herring so they were they were literally the red herrings nice. um, additionally before that you guys fought the Mass Effect crew right. and the reason I did that was specifically so you thought I was just throwing these like interesting like I was living out the fantasy of playing these guys yeah. when really it was just so you didn't notice that why did the Avengers show up all of a sudden in this, <laughs> this campaign it was so tossing Mass Effect in the Avengers is going to put you on the trail of pop culture instead of searching for the clues of storyline and that's really how I try to combat metagaming which I think is the only obvious flaw in Dungeons and Dragons uh, so it sounds like we, if different choices were made, the ending could have been different. Yeah. Uh, so was sure. there anything, any like big choices or anything that you planned that we just like completely missed out on? Because I know during Paul's campaign, yeah. uh, you had actually written in the Underdark into p- part of it, right? Like originally you had planned for us to go down. Well, that's there. what I like was planning on doing. Yeah. And I kind of like started doing that, but then when you messed it up by uh, putting uh, putting him to sleep, yeah. even though we weren't yeah which technically really allowed. <laughs> Then I just stopped writing that because I was like, oh, right. I gotta find a different. So, is there way. anything like a- any branching storylines or anything that we just like completely miss out on? I don't think you guys missed anything big. I think it was just things that could have been different. Um, those companions would have definitely changed the way things things worked. But as far as missing things, it's just kind of minor stuff. I, I can go through some of the things that you, the minor things that you missed, if you want, like figuring out the troll fist hammer. Do you want to go through that? <laughs> <laughs> next, uh, next season's DM has already been told. What the troll fist oh. does. So. so there are two people at this table who know what it is. It'd be funny if it was just a Pez dispenser or something. The troll fist at the end just pops open. <laughs> there you go. Um, the four people in the holding cells at the mayor's castle. Do you remember that? That I let out. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that, yeah. Um, Paul uh, in his in great, well, great. Hold on, hold on. What was the line? <laughs> what the f, Sherlock? <laughs> um, Paul's uh, role playing of sneaking the the lockpick back to them. I love. Yeah, but that's um, great. That's great. Th- so there were four people in there plus a crazy person but the four people you knew there there was a tailor a knight a bookkeeper and an undertaker Seidel Aureus um, and Theravolt <laughs> the tailor would have been able to lock pick it if you get him supplies from the holding locker and the knight was in there because he stole food because um, ever since you toppled Turtle Bottom's regime, all the former knights were blacklisted and seen as baby killers. So had you let them go, the the knight would have actually stay to help you in that in that scenario. Mm. Um, and the bookkeeper in jail for propaganda could have been easily persuaded to help you guys. We were not good at getting help throughout this entire <laughs> season. So we prefer from, to kill. From there, um, additionally, uh, when you enter the barracks, there are some shields on the wall, and I would have definitely let you take in the shields if you wanted them. One of them was magical. 
and you would have <laughs> and you would have selected it if you would ask me to make an arcana check. So if you said, "Is there any magical shields?" Would have had you roll. You could have gotten the magic one. Having the knight with you would have made you automatically. Uh, get it? He would have been like, "Wow, this place hasn't changed a bit since that was his old stomping ground." It would have picked up the magical shield for you. So you could have had a magical shield in the second uh, the second session of this entire episode. <laughs> Who needs a shield when you have a big sword? <laughs> it's a trollfish shield. <laughs> it goes together with the trollfish. We're going back to Scandron. Yeah. And then obviously you could have raided almost everything. The reason I love trinkets so much is that you guys can just raid things. I think trinkets give color and backstory to characters, even if they are randomly generated. Uh, also in the mayor's castle, inside the briefing room you guys went through all the cabinets and you found some random business or um, meeting supplies but inside the cabinets one of the things I mentioned was paperweights they were animals with a really shitty bronzing job on them and if you'd taken the effort to debronze them it would have been revealed that they were figurines of wondrous power which can be activated into becoming the actual versions of their animals so like there's oh. a oh, so if, if you like d- did you debronze this like goat thing you could have said the magic power and becomes a goat of traveling or some, some <laughs> random stuff so there was just kind of minor things there that I thought if you if you happen to happen upon them, you can have them. And you guys found some of them. You guys have a litany of weird, magical, quirky items. Some of which I've probably either thrown out or forgot to write down in my character sheet. <laughs> this is infuriating because when I play video games, I'm the type of person that is like, I want to talk to every NPC. I want to find every single item. And yeah. now you're telling me like, oh, you could have gotten help by this person, by this person, by this person. I'm like, no, I, I want mean, to go back if, and replay yeah. this. If you want to talk NPCs, I wrote quick backstories for any NPC you could have come across with. The, so the first one started on the train and it actually reused any characters you didn't interact with so they would reappear at uh, like Spike Tail's Tavern or the Sidel's Jail. Oh, nice. <laughs> but um, one great tool, I think, to use for NPCs is just give them minor quirks or just very simple properties that, allow, that allows you to roleplay the character different than any character you do. So things that are very simple. Uh, for instance, one of the people you met on the while traveling was an orc, and that orc's property was she doesn't like people to stand behind her. That's it. So <laughs> you can create... She has some backstory where she doesn't like people to stand behind her. So had you stood behind her, she would have gotten upset, and that's just a quirk that you can throw in. There's <laughs> nice. another guy who, if he if you talk with him, he, he enjoyed talking about what things would be like if they were other colors. So if you got him into a conversation, he would be like, uh, what if grass was always red? Do you think we would still like roses? And... Uh, if rabbits were green, would we think they were just large insects? <laughs> so just inane things like that, which I think just give people very simple properties. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you think quirks are too hard to write, just give them a, a job and imagine the day-to-day mindset of a person in that job. And I think these are the things that can quickly give an NPC three dimensions instead of this normal, this person is a commoner, he is dumb, or this person is a guard, he is poor. And if you want more detail... Or if you just want to substitute detail for uniqueness, and I know I'm circling back into how do I DM now, if you want livelier NPC interactions, more than you simply talking to your players, it, it, it's, it's your voice. And I subscribe to the Hank Azaria method of voice acting. Hank Azaria is the guy who does half the voices on The Simpsons. Both he and I cannot do impressions. So the way he makes the voices is he attempts an impression of someone. <laughs> so bartender most is lack is Hank Azaria's shitty impression of Al Pacino, or Lou, the black police officer, is a shitty Sylvester Stallone. So in my NPC notes, I just jot down a random celebrity who doesn't even need a particularly interesting voice. I just write down someone to imitate, and then I think, oh, talk with the pitch and, and cadence of Alfred Molina, or uh, try Antonio Banderas' thick accent, or do you remember uh, the lilt that Monstroso has in the season four of Adventure Brothers? To briefly jump into world building, which I think is one of those things... If done right, nobody will notice. I I tried to have diverse environments when you've visited civilizations, and it's tough because you do find yourself falling back on every town needs XYZ, and XYZ are the only things players would care about anyway. Um, I think those things being a tavern, lodging, and shops. So my attempt at world building was similar to character building. Just give it something and stick with it. So Bayogate is the best example of this undertone. Bayogate is a farming town and has been one for generations. Everything in the town is centered around farming and the godlike status of Arid Arid Ramjuron, the scientist who created better farming equipment. Without explicitly saying all this, I tried to show how uncomfortably cramped the place was because it was farming over convenience. And I tried to show just how special and highly the Ramjuron household was held. It was the only place that could grow ornamental flowers instead of useful, marketable, or livable crops. 
And even the language in the town is farming focused. They said shit like, no, pumpkin seeds. Or, now wait, an olive pit in second. Or, these mother huskers got what's coming to them. So as bright as it sounds, and as unidentified as it may end up, a little nudge away from the flat personality of a character or town, I think goes a long way. But back to these NPCs. So my favorite was this guy named Matata, who's a traveling salesman. So he works for an alchemist, and he's trying to get the word out on his new potion mixture. And um, in my head, he talks like Dr. Oz be like, it's a normal healing potion without usual harmful effects. See, Eastern medicine has a culture of making you sick. They don't want you to get healthier. Why would they make a healing potion that heals you? Then you don't need to keep buying potions. This compound has the memory of healing potion infused within the molecules. So he's basically a homeopathic nut, but in this universe, Eastern medicine is the default. <laughs> so he, he would have given you a healing potion for free, but it would have healed one HP on a roll of a four on a D4 since it was so watered down. There was a girl who was on on her way back from her mother's funeral. So if talking to her, if you got her to open up, she would have discussed that. And that's why she's wearing her mother's necklace. So things that can just add flavor that I think are actually easy to do just to jot down, this is what this character does. And then if your player's going to call your bluff that, is this a real person? You have something that you can interact with your characters with and I think makes it a more real experience than just the classic NPC of, hello, hello, nice day. I'd love to get a number of different NPCs that actually appeared throughout this season because <laughs> uh, they pretty much all had voices like and to your point they all had like little quirks that we we you know found out as we talked to them i think uh, i think sherlock had the best interaction with npcs with the two were they gnomes the yeah, two gnomes, two gnomes. Like the, hip, the hippie ones <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was the line uh, let the eggs stew in the berries. <laughs> is that what it's I, I don't so. remember what that means. <laughs> you had before Bertrude hatched, you had the egg that you'd found in like the tree or when you tried to put it back up or whatever. Yeah, and I was holding it in the Goodberry. Yeah, yeah, you were holding it in the cup. Goodberry cup, and I think they asked about Salutations, it. Salutations, brother. My name is Stog, and this is my celestial companion, Horla, and my immortal Elysian, Kotla. And Kotla was the rabbit. But so, we didn't know which was which. Yeah. <laughs> and wasn't the rabbit like, get me the hell out of here? I like how Paul whispered the whole <laughs> I'm letting the eggs stew in the berries. <laughs> uh, showing, so we, showing Sherlock's gnome side. <laughs> uh, so we had another write-in from Jake Murray, uh, who's uh, another... We had a lot of write-ins from people who are DMing or looking to DM, uh, looking for some tips. Uh, so Jake Murray wanted to get the perspectives of both Paul and David on, on their experiences DMing and some of the resources or inspiration you guys used uh, to craft these amazing adventures. Well, this was like when, when I did my campaign, this was only the second campaign that we had ever run. We did one where Josiah ran a, a fourth edition, and that was the first time we had ever played Dungeons & Dragons, and then we started this one. Um, and I, I really just, I was on, I think I said this probably in the last last year, but I was just on a plane and I thought of something that would be a cool storyline that was basically like, what if these guys went to other dimensions, and what if one of them was medieval times? <laughs> and, that, and then from there, I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to make a story out of that. Um, so that was kind of like the base of my storyline, and I kind of just fit everything into there. Um, <laughs> medieval times is the core of your story. It's like <laughs> early on in the season, too, yeah. No, no, that was at the end. That really? was when you were medieval going through times? all the... No, I thought that was towards the beginning. It feels it? like the beginning. That was when you were going... When you found the cottage, and yeah. you went in, you were going oh, through all yeah. the different... Uh, you were going through all the different like time periods for great justice, <laughs> <laughs> and then you finally found him. Because after you captured him, then all the skeletons came back yeah, to real people. It, totally not a real D and D thing. I like, and this is something that I feel like is very different between mine and David's campaign. I was just kind of like, I think this would be cool. I'm not even going to look in the rulebook to try and justify <laughs> this. This is a fantastical world. So like, boom, they're all skeletons. They're real people that just look like skeletons, and you're going to have to roll with it. It's not like it's not like I was looking through the spells and it's like, oh. Okay, this is the spell that he's right, using. Right. I just he's just that powerful. So I was my damning style was much more like uh not rule based, I guess, and I was just kind of like this would be cool, so I'm going to do that. I also definitely did not uh plan as much as David did and I did not in ter- at least in terms of NPCs, um mine was I would say slightly more linear, and the elements that weren't linear were kind of like, okay, I know they'll choose one of these three things, like the frosted tips, the mountain range, <laughs> which I did, like, I planned for all three of whichever one you chose, um, and you you did miss one that, like, you could have gone up, so that was my kind of, like, open-worldness, so yeah. it was still, it was still a little... Um, 
I guess, tunneled. It was still like a path, uh, which isn't as fun, but I'm just not as good of a DM. So, yeah. Do you <laughs> have any, you any other tips or resources that you use to put it together? Well, my tip would be, David might disagree. My tip would be, for me, don't get bogged down by the rules. And if like if if you're kind of like not sure about something, think about what would be the most fun for the players yep. and then just go that way. Obviously, like you still want there to be elements of danger like because you definitely want it to be possible that everyone's going to die that's one of the most fun parts of it but um there were definitely times when i was like oh i don't really know like if this is D legal i did air quotes but i think it'd be more fun so i'm going to do it like that well it's funny too because uh i think a lot of the things that may have been illegal i think it just helps the story flow and it's fine but the one thing the joke we always go back to was the whole putting the drought asleep which yeah. really changed right. a lot of stuff right. and it, we it, probably didn't need that much in-depth knowledge of D to know that <laughs> and, and that that was huge and it changed it in the way that i didn't want it to right. yeah, exactly exactly like i did not want that to happen which is why he kept like casting all these spells like he had kept like there was the one where like all the vines or something just came out of the ground to try and stop you he was like really trying to run away and you just really messed that up <laughs> your point of picking the final option is literally called rule of fun so there's like there's like rules as written rules as intended rules as fun which is the third one which is just do what you want um, and just have a good time. I, I, I think I kind of erred on the rule of fun for most of it. I just tried to make it uh, realistic to not break your characters. So in a scenario, a very simple one that people bring up is that if, uh, if intelligence is a dump stat, if you guys just know things or can do things or can see things, that makes it boring. Um, so I definitely tried to use all of your skills properly to give them some flavor. But as far as all the spells, oddly enough, I would write my own, like, I guess you could call them spells? Like, every single spell that, that Seidel cast was an actual spell. Or every, right. spell, every spell that Boron cast was an actual spell. I think I kind of just worked backwards and thought, I think that this would be cool. How would the D&D universe interpret this? And I gave him an actual spell that, yeah. that matched it closely. Um, I think just to make it more interesting for everyone, that if they wanted to know, they could have asked Boron, what did you cast? And he said, I casted Great Water, and that's what made it rain. <laughs> Paul's approach was like, I don't know, man, this shit just happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll also say... Um, if you are going to do a campaign that's going to be followed by someone else doing a campaign, don't like put a lot of thought into creating magical items and stuff like that because I oh, definitely yeah, just yeah, yeah. kind of created these items and and I did not intend to make them. I wanted to make them like, oh, this is like the end of the campaign. Like this is like for Thaddeus the gauntlet and the sword. Like that was like his thing right. that he got and the the dagger. The dagger um, yeah. It wasn't specifically for town, but it was just that was like the thing that that you got after that boss yep. so like i definitely wanted to make them more powerful but i think i made them slightly too powerful <laughs> which is real like i was saying which is annoying if then someone else is going to pick up with those same characters because then they're like oh god like everyone's average damage is 12 but then this one weapon deals 50 <laughs> damage and it's it's like hard to go from there well i was actually thinking about that because especially we've been conditioned by video games that yeah you're always you're always doing bigger numbers and damage and things like that but you realize especially with this game plus one is a really big deal it feels like nothing though when right. I'm like oh cool yeah great plus one but it really is considering that you're uh, I mean with rolls you're going from one to twenty that really does change it a lot but yeah I will say I can understand why you'd want to build it that way because I definitely felt at first where I was like I, why is why don't I have 30 strength I need more strength I only did the OP weapons a few times the other times I think I followed it pretty well which with the randomized loot which I know did David did a, a lot of randomized loot, and I'm not sure if you did this. Like in the the DM manual, there's like, how hard was it? It's like, okay, it was this hard. Then you roll on this table for yeah, for it, magic items it, or it, any it, items. Yeah. And I did. I typically I was like, man, I really want them to get really cool <laughs> stuff. So I would, if it was like monster rating four, I would roll on the table for like five or something like that. So I would be kind of pushing it a little bit, just because a lot of them are just like real basic stuff and since we were all like first second you were all first second level guys it's like you would be getting like yeah i got a greater potion of healing that was like the best <laughs> thing that you could get i was like that's just not cool we spent so long in that in that wreckage trying to get them to <laughs> yeah, yeah i spent all my monsters. turns yeah, what was it trying I to get my five tenders yeah you both talked about um both the, the randomization and specifically that scavenging so i actually wrote a custom mechanic for it and in speaking of of the inspiration behind 
my campaign. I think a lot of the inspiration was just, I want to try something out. This game is a real huge sandbox. And to your point of obeying the rules versus making your own, I took heavy advantage of the rules when making up my own mechanics. And I guess we can discuss the semantics of rules versus mechanics. There's no rule on searching through wreckage, but there's an established rule of random loot. So even if it's an assistance more than a rule, it's still a valid D&D-approved way of rolling for loot. Now, the mechanic of how you get the loot and what table to roll on is not established, and that gave me the freedom to build all these in-game events. An actual source of inspiration, I know it might sound recursive because you are inspiring yourself, but just <laughs> trying things out and using that as the inspiration because yeah. you can you can afford to make a couple mistakes in D&D before they add up and things get nutty. <laughs> but for this one, for, for the finding the scavenging, I wrote an actual like algorithm for it. Not something super complicated, but the scavenging mechanic in the loot was, it was you rolled perception plus the investigation plus the round. So a five on either investigation or perception would fail because it means you can't see or can't find it. Every round you got another plus one, which encouraged you to scavenge more than encouraged you to help your friends. Right. <laughs> because as an incentive, I figured the game needs an incentive to look for things. Again, getting back to me trying to combat metagaming. And then based on that roll, um, below a 15 was a trinket. Above a 15 was from the A table you mentioned. Yeah. And then if you got to 55, it was the H table. So if you really abandoned all your friends, <laughs> had very good perception investigation, you could have hypothetically found a really rare weapon at the cost of your friends dying. And that's what I wanted to make it. <laughs> Sorry, I think, Thaddeus. I, Actually, I think I was knocked out, right? Uh, I think it was me. It was me. So yeah, so that's the inspiration there. And then also, um, using every skill that was important, which you can see in the first episode, almost all the skills are used when yeah. you're which running was through cool. Scandrum. Yeah, that was, that yeah. was a um, fantastic sequence. And most those weren't written specifically for anyone so a well-rounded character would just naturally do better in these things than right. getting lucky with oh i'm the detective i'll be able to find this or even using skills as jumping off points another mechanic i invented that took advantage of the new advantage rule in fifth edition <laughs> a couple times i would ask you to roll an initial die which I used as more of a coin flip to grant you advantage on the next check. An example would be, and I'm sure Paul will mention this moment later, is Sherlock wanted to make an intimidation check while pretending to be an angel. So first I have him try to pass a religion check to see if he can better intimidate the crowd. Oh, because you also had the, the map underground, right? That, yeah, that you I built in the browser? Yeah. yeah, the map in... Um Seidel's uh, yeah, to press number yeah, yeah. which 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 would decode your presses in, into trinary, not binary, into trinary, and then mod it over the maximum number of spells, and he would just cast. He w he could have casted literally any single spell that was in that book. <laughs> oh my God! What if someone casted but they like what is it like anyone under 150 HP dies automatically, <laughs> like death touch or wish yeah. or something. The time I did the, the the one time I did right before Seidel lost control because he was in a panic. The one time I used the random spell dialer. He successfully cast plane shift and sent you to the city of the brass. That's a very high high end yeah, spell. Yeah. That was yeah. random. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, wait, wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't well, realize that. Wow, we have to talk about that. <laughs> I think it was easier just to write a very simple outline of what I want to happen, and then realize now that the D and D universe is here, I'm just going to start throwing random scenarios. I learned very quickly that the players will help you get through things. The players will will rarely not want to do things or not have an idea to, to do stuff. So if you're if you're erring on, I'm worried I don't have the right inspiration, I think it's very, um, I'm not going to say easy, but it's, uh, it's not a daunting task just to say, I think this would be cool, I would like this to happen, let's just see what happens. Um, and if, you're, if your players aren't dicks, then I think we'll all have, have a good time. It's tough, it's tough to actively sabotage a campaign uh, because you're all the in the That's the nicest team. thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, yeah, I think also one thing that David did that made the campaign like very very interesting both probably for the listeners and for us was that and this is not something that I did and something that's also incredibly difficult to do I, I would think is that there were like I forget what you called them not chapters but like the kind of different stages of the campaign like each one and even inside each one they were like you kind of created a mechanic for that every single one of those pieces that was different than anything else so for instance for the train there was that scavenger aspect right. where it's like the, the, the longer you scavenged the like the, the more likely you are to get, to get something. For the um, Seidel fight, there was the, uh, I know you couldn't 
as a listener, you couldn't see it, but he was he literally had his phone and we were pressing buttons on the phone and then he decided which spell to cast. For the underground um for like the underground dungeon thing, we were literally doing it on the computer and it was it was like randomly generated yeah. encounters. Yeah, so it it like that sort of thing. Um like there was the exhaustion aspect of the desert. It's like all these things that only happened once and then every single time every other time there was like something different that happened and that was like that kept it fresh and interesting and I feel like it's not something that like a lot of DMs can do just because it's just not easy I know I didn't do it that was out of my kind of my uh, disdain for just hack and slash um, and that's why uh, to, to go what you said about you didn't really care if, if things made sense I definitely spent way too much time making th- making sure things made sense <laughs> things that you would never question like e- even trying to figure out my original notes was just that uh, someone brought Hatterai's dead body to Theravel, and Theravel goes, oh, the Mark, it's Perrin's kid. That's kind of far-fetched. Why did this guy bring a random dead body even in the mayor's castle? How did Nero get to get to the mayor before you guys, right? Like, how, how'd you not, how did he get in? Because you guys were entering locked things and, and all that. And there was actually a, a place you missed, which was the stables. So you guys never entered the stables, but they were there. And if there was a, the wall facing outside was destroyed, so it's assumed the horses had escaped. And rooting around the hay, you would find a compass, the drawing tool, not the navigation thing, which was dropped by map maker Nero. So there had to be a logical way for Nero to get into the castle, and that logical way was that one of the walls fell down, and he went in. <laughs> so everything I tried to do, I tried to, if you wanted to call my bluff and ask why, uh, I wanted to have a reason for it. I really hope there's some listeners like, now I understand. I was wondering how <laughs> Nero got That's there. bothered me since the whole time. <laughs> Another thing you... Uh, and sorry if I've already used this analogy. S- something you didn't so much miss it as you simply may not have noticed, but it was stuff I put in to justify everything I did. Theravel sends you to what is described as certain death by putting you in those caves. It's known around town as Death Duchy. You guys had a tough battle, but were by no means overmatched by the Night Hag nor the other creepy crawlers along the way. And at one point, it's referred to later, after you come back, it's referred to as the Coven Caves. Now, a coven in both definition and the D&D sense, is a group of hags. And when hags are in a coven, not only are they triple in quantity, but they gain deadly boosted stats and expanded spells. So it stands to reason that the passed down legend of these death duchy coven caves has eclipsed the death of the remaining hag sisters, and maybe that's why she's, she was a shroom fiend now. Additionally, this is used to play into the overall theme of the later game, which was mistaken prowess. Theramol <laughs> sings your praises as being unbeatable superheroes when, once again, you were just a successful product of misinformation. <laughs> um, you guys passed over some things at, at uh, Ed Gedge's uh, prize hall. Um, at, at the Fairgrounds oh, yeah. Prize Hall. Um, additionally, I want to point out, in case anyone, no one noticed, um, I had a lot of inside jokes. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess you call them inside jokes in, uh, throughout my whole campaign uh, between names or I would be taking like Latin root words to give you hints of things. But my favorite is it, it was Ed Gedge's Prize Hall, and Ed Gedge is E D G E D G E, so the, it was literally <laughs> double edge. So all the items were, <laughs> were double edge. I also words. thought I, oh I loved that when I actually threw the dagger, it just yeah, took yeah, off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the things you didn't take were some taffy that was expired so eating it makes you unable to speak but you ought to pass any wisdom intelligence or Christmas saving throws <laughs> there was uh, a whipping chain that when you whip it it would unleash a ghost dog which would attack the first thing it sees <laughs> so you, you couldn't see it unless you could see the ethereal plane but you'd just be attacked by some being every time you whip this chain and then there was an oil lamp um, that, uh, that rubbing it would create this, this genie but the genie can only grant one wish because he used the other two because things get lonely and he rubbed them out himself. <laughs> um, oh, God. So those are the things that you missed there. And Zebo's music is Zebo. Also inside joke there. Zebo is the evil clown in the very scary episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm. <laughs> um, so Zebo's music is Zebo. You guys uh, kind of fixed the piano. The sheet music was actually a spell scroll for Shatter, which is what it kept casting over and over again. So let's move on and say, just go around the 
table and just say what your favorite moment was from the campaign. Okay, so uh, Azir talking again. Um, I really like uh, in character. <laughs> obviously, right the uh, what the f Sherlock. Uh, yeah, I just a gut response, and, and it was fun for it to come out. And you know, I you've thought, actually had the quote of the season twice now because I'm pretty sure you said for great you said for yeah. great justice too, yeah. and that yeah. became like the saying for last and, season. And he was the founder of uh, kicking sco- flying skulls. Flying skulls. skulls. <laughs> yeah, you're a trendsetter, man. Um, so yeah, it was just it felt natural, right? Because at that time, Sherlock was kind of new to the party, and um, still wasn't <laughs> wasn't sure where he where he uh, where his loyalties lied <laughs> laid and. Um, and all that jazz, and then he went behind our backs, and you know the whole circle of trust came up. So that was fun, <laughs> and um, just a lot of stuff with uh, Sherlock's character. I just thought he was a, a nutty dude. Um, I'll I'll not say all of them, just in case uh, Paul wants to say some of the stuff that he did. Another specific thing was um, on the train playing high pie. I I somehow ended up being the dealer for that because of my That's high so dexterity, <laughs> and so I actually got into it like. Dealing the cards and showing, um, you know, because there was a mechanic where I could cheat and and showing uh, Rob the, uh, the the high card and stuff like that, and and we try to get into this system where we would bet and actually win, and we were actually playing those games. We played it out in cards, like there was an actual yeah. game, and we played it out. We actually, played several rounds of high five. I actually haven't listened fun. to that episode, so I don't. I didn't. Yeah, either. I didn't <laughs> so either. So I don't know high what the game's about. That's another. That's totally another mechanic that. I mean, it, just it was high created. tension, like World Series of High Pie here. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. So that, that was really cool. Um, the other thing, I mean, it's it was kind of funny, uh, just the trinket of the cat whistle. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I always wanted those cats to show up. Uh, but just in general, we've this has already been said a, a couple different ways, but David went to film school, and it really shows in uh, – or he, he studied film. Yeah, uh, and, and he, he watches films sometimes. <laughs> David likes movies. He's heard of a movie. Or, or two. He can spell the word film <laughs> most of the time. But no, but his his cinematic style throughout the whole thing really shows, and it, it's just really excellent. And I I got a big kick of that kick out of that. And you know the opening scene yeah. where we're cutting scene, yeah. cutting from one character to another. I mean that obviously is a movie uh, tactic or, or uh, strategy that nudge we, nudge Hollywood <laughs> <laughs> that you we see all the time and it just it just fits it feels right so to pull that into this type of storytelling I thought was really uh, brilliant so and that's, piggybacking that's on that um, when we when that happens so I mean I don't know about you guys but I you know I've never seen any of David's writing I had no idea what to expect with the session and we just start out and you can immediately yeah. tell it's a scene like it's uh, that kind of thing it was just a crazy way to start and I actually I'm pretty sure I remember as we started as we all kind of realized what was going on not story wise but that this is how it's being written we all kind of had smiles on our, fa- yeah, our faces yeah. where it's like this is kind of crazy yeah and to go on the film thing David at one point literally said it was when I when Sherlock uh, found out that the, that most of the eagle eggs uh, hawk eggs were um, smashed and I went no and David said camera pans out and Sherlock yeah. knows, like, crosses, crosses across the city and pans in on town yeah. yeah so uh, I'm gonna move on I have a uh, a few little moments there because they were just I don't know there were just a lot of little things like it's the little things that make it man um, I remember in the the train sequence I remember so it was uh, me and Sherlock were doing all this stuff and when we're on top of the trains somehow we got every single yeah. roll we just dominated to that whole section like it was like we were just ninjas somehow even though I'm a giant orc and you're a little guy I don't know it was just crazy and then it's so funny that we do that we're all pumped up and then later we just find out it's all a dream and we end up being basically naked like just the chances of all that stuff happening together was not what I expected but I was so excited but I think we rolled did we roll more than 120 at that Probably time like we you. were just I don't even think you expected that we would no, get through no, it as fast as we did David didn't you say like they were actually supposed to fail and something good was yeah. like you had a, a safety built in, but they just nailed all the rules. No, it's true. Um, that that entire that entire session of Jane Allen tricking you. Every single time you failed, I had a fail mechanism. But you, but you guys only failed like once, which was <laughs> not realizing that uh, something about you guys didn't realize that you could 
you could enter the roof from the kitchen. And Jane Ellen goes, oh, I can help. Maybe, maybe we can do this. So I did have this, this scaffolding mechanic that every time you couldn't figure out something or rolled poorly, Jane would help you because she's the one tricking you. And this is, you, okay. this is your guy's fantasy, so you always succeed. But you guys ended up succeeding anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also, uh, one other one, and you guys can correct me if I don't have this completely correct, but I think I remember Talon having a potion and he didn't want to give it out even though he needed it. And I think that was the potion that ended up being the poison one, yeah, right? Yeah. And we spent all this time and he was like, I don't want to give it to you. And then we get it and it just, it hurts us. Like, of all things, that would be a very Talon thing to do. Yes, it is. Uh, and then switching a little to, I don't know, not more serious, but uh, the very end, the final battle. So I, I figure, I don't know what the calculus was when you were making this boss battle, but I know whenever you're doing a boss battle, it's I assume it's difficult to figure out because on one end you can make a boss that just has really high HP and is strong and then you just fight and kill the thing eventually but I assume there's some part of you that wants to make it a little more unique because this is the final boss like sure you could just hack it to death but that's kind of so you have to figure out almost uh, for lack of a better word the gimmick that you have and when we switched bodies so I was the first one to get Seidel's body um, David handed me the character sheet and I had Seidel's character sheet. I'm like, holy shit, this guy is so OP. I literally, I think there was still like story stuff going on. I wasn't listening to anything. I was just reading it. And I was like, wait, I can do all these spells? Like, I have 18 AC and I'm immune to fire. And I can, like, I almost want to post it because I was just like, this is what it's like to be the final boss. And it was just a really cool moment that I almost, I didn't want to immediately say, hey guys, I'm Seidel. Um, but I kind of looked and I had like, I was like, how do I not act really giddy? that right now I'm like so fucking powerful and, and it was just cool and I think under like what did it say under the weapons it was like it was like he, he can cast any spell just do that <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah oh that was so cool I have a, a couple too oh this is this is Sherlock the first one in the very beginning when the the druggies were just throwing potions at Talon were you not gonna talk I about, about that okay That's yeah where he, they're just throwing yeah. potions at him and it keeps like it turns him into like smoke and then <laughs> It, it turned really into small. vapor, yeah. and it turned really small. But my and that was like so goofy. But my favorite part was, and I only remember this because we listened to this episode recently. Was when one of the potions missed him and flies out the window, and then David just goes, and then you hear a guy go, "I think I can read minds." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, my second favorite moment is definitely just like the, the train <laughs> sequence because basically what Sean just said, it's like I was so proud of how well we were doing. Oh man, just, like, just to all have taken it. Away. We had all these ideas to get to the cage and like, oh man, the and little we spider were, like, thing. naked for the most like <laughs> a lot of the rest of the campaign yeah, because we of were. This. We, were. <laughs> we had to find pants. <laughs> yeah. And then um and then my my number one favorite part, um and I I mean I, I think I Sherlock character-wise, I didn't say this before when I was talking about Sherlock's character inspiration. I think like halfway through the campaign, I was just like, I'm just gonna ma- start making Sherlock just do like these out outrageous things and just start making him just kind of like do these things that are probably going to get him killed, but will maybe work out. And um, my favorite one of those things was when he uh, drank the potion of invulnerability, which <laughs> I Paul thought that that would make him literally invulnerable, but it actually. No, it just like bumps yeah. your stats a little. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it bumps my stats a little, and then Sherlock drinks that, and then runs into like the enemy lines where yeah. he, would, he will most definitely get killed. And again, I thought that that would just make me literally invincible, um, and it didn't. And then he did the whole charade where he was pretended to be like the angel of death, and yeah, I think you were. And naked. that's actually was part. I think more... you were naked throughout that. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. like yeah. loincloth. I think I gave you my shirt and the loincloth. But I think you also used the uh, necromancer's ring or something at that time. So your hand was a skeleton. Oh, oh yeah, actually, I brushed the hand. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. cast it yeah. so that his hand turned into a skeleton, and I yeah, like, brushed put it the on. guy's cheek. Yeah, with it. that's my favorite part. <laughs> Just, and so I, I drew uh, characters for for everybody, and so when I was drawing those, uh, that was my favorite one to draw was Sherlock because he just had all this crazy shit in his picture so I had um, half his hand a skeleton from the necromancer's ring and apparently if I had drawn the picture later in the season he would have been all skeleton (laughs) just kept getting worse and worse because it was cursed oh I I kept being so tempted to just cast I was like oh when am I going to get I was like when can I cast this again so that I literally just turn it into a skeleton (laughs) 
But yeah, that was that part was really funny. I literally thought he was going to die, also, but he didn't. So that was cool. <laughs> I actually have a question for you. Do you have a favorite Bertrude moment? Because I will say, Bertrude <laughs> he turned into a much bigger deal, and it was cool. It definitely kept it around. saved us one. Fight. Yeah, yeah. I think the first Seidel fight. I think he yeah. like came in and ripped uh, off, ripped off. Yeah, his glove. yeah. yeah. And wasn't there, was it the Avengers fight where at the very end he just pops out of your beard and oh, yeah, he screws yeah, him up yeah. for one turn, which is enough for us to like, yeah. like get one heal or something in. And I don't know. I just like Bertrude was something that I totally think, could have been a side thing. Just, we can oh, agree whatever. Bertrude was the MVP. Isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. still a lot. <laughs> no one knows. It's up to the new DM. I mean, oh, no. how long do Hawks last if you were in the city of Brass for 25 years? Right? Oh, no. Wait, no, but. Oh, it would oh did Bertrude come with me? I don't know. Because I thought that. He's a brass she? bird now. Is it she or yeah. she? <laughs> I guess I never, well, never checked. It is our social construct. Um, I don't think... Uh, I've, 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 I've a feeling Bertrude flew away at one point during the Seidel thing. It was, it was never said. It was, oh, it was never no. said? Okay, then I guess... Then Bertrude is definitely going to come back as, like, this steampunk, like, gear... Like, <laughs> one eye is, like, a gear. <laughs> mechanical, yeah, it's like yeah. a mechanical bird. What's the, what's the thing in uh, Bioshock? The birdie? The, the birdman? Oh, uh... In Songbird. Bioshock. Songbird. Songbird. Yes, yeah, and Bertrude is also going to be that big, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had a couple... Uh, a couple favorite moments. I think I don't know why, but every time David does the laugh, and you'll, you'll know what I mean in a second, I just lose it. And it's when the first time we heard it was when uh, Hydriana was dancing in the club, and there was a wizard who was shooting out fake coins. And eventually, she realized that the coins just like went through her because they were like you know illusionary or whatever. And David just <laughs> he was walking out just shooting coins. Ah! Ah! <laughs> he had his maniacal laugh. Throughout this, that just kills me. When else Every time I hear it, I don't. There was like two other times where it happened. I think I. Oh, uh, actually, one of my other favorite moments that I'll get into in the fairgrounds. I think when I got possessed at one point, I think yeah. I laughed like yeah. that. Uh, so that was one. Uh, I think my favorite Talon line throughout the whole thing uh, when we were in those caves looking for the mushroom. Uh, for whatever reason, Rob, myself, role playing Talon, forgot that he could cast fire and thought that eating the mushroom room would let him cast fireballs oh, yeah. <laughs> so i got really excited to eat it and then i like realized halfway through me saying that that i was like oh wait this is all i do real rob was eating a little too many mushrooms yeah there. right uh but i think my favorite moment which is actually ended up being like three or four episodes but the the fairgrounds into the doll sequence where uh uh, Talon ends up getting possessed by the doll. I think Talon really got into his element where he just literally started burning everything <laughs> down. Like anything that pissed me off was like, nope, fire. Uh, and then the the doll sequence. Uh, I I don't know if we actually got into this during or explained this at all, but David. I think came to me uh, outside of the outside of recording, and he was like, "Oh, I have this idea. Uh, you're going to get possessed by this doll." And then uh, we started working together. To the point where during that session, we were actually slacking each other on the computer <laughs> yeah. to plan out things that were going on. And like half the chat, if you look back, is just like, oh, I'm gonna think I'm gonna do this. Ah, like this is hilarious. You need to do this now. And it was just that back and forth. So I was like, I was like, oh, uh, I'm just gonna stab that. Yeah, that was always the answer. That's stab in the back. Uh, and but, then, but it was, you know, it was all beyond that because then even things you were doing, because you, you went invisible and then you're yeah. saying you wanted things to be casted. So I was, based, I was narrating what Rob was saying to do while Rob was pretending to be down still. Yeah. Then, then you guys knew that Rob was secretly casting the wind, the warding wind, uh, stabbing Thaddeus while invisible. Oh my god. Uh, and then my favorite part, personally though, was David at one point during this goes, have, have you been like holding a grudge against Paul for any reason? <laughs> and I was like, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Paul's my brother in real life, in case that nobody knew that. But uh, uh, And we kind of explained this, I think that ended up in the post, yeah. the post show, but basically like, what, 10, 12 years ago 15 years ago yeah so like my fudge that we bring back from the shore that we go to once a year mysteriously disappeared i didn't need it (laughs) Uh, he had brown lips that day so that was the lucille's fudge that worked its way in there (laughs) Uh, but that whole sequence and just the back and forth between david and i to go through and just like the how much happened on the fly during that episode uh it was a lot of fun to make 
So obviously, I've got a lot of favorite moments. I had a blast doing almost every part of this campaign, the writing of it. Um, so I'll talk about things that I think would have been fun had they happened. In the opening scene, during the chaos, Sherlock rolled really well and was, was able to properly notice the Minotaur looking for the crying kid. Had Sherlock promised to take him to his parents, the kid would have led him to a graveyard because, oh, yeah, yeah. because Milo runs an orphanage. And since Minotaurs have perfect path recall, the Minotaur would have beat Sherlock. So he, he would have been looming in the graveyard. He would have been like, what are you doing here? <laughs> but like actually asking the kid what he's doing here. So had there been some accidental mishappenings, the, the Minotaur could have attacked Sherlock. <laughs> um, and then uh, one of my favorite lost opportunities was actually prevented by Thaddeus's heroism. So after the train crash, Thaddeus wastes a lot of his 10 rounds looking for Azir. Mm-hmm. Um, the last moment Azir had, he was being impaled by dozens of darts in the careening train car. So had Azir not been found, the rust monsters were going to have smelled the metal inside Azir and mistaken him for an organic source of metal and begin carrying him back <laughs> oh, to the God. underground lair. <laughs> and you guys would have had to fight your way through an underground cavern to find him, including fighting the rust monster queen that would have ranged corrosive rust properties. Um, <laughs> so I had this whole thing set up, assuming no one would want to find Azir, because, hey, there's a bunch of free stuff if you want it. And Thaddeus <laughs> says, no, i got to find my friend is here. So those are two things that I, I think would have been funny moments that had perfectly uh, alternative endings. So the uh, the last uh, comment that we have. Uh, so I don't know if you, you people realize this. Actually, I guess you wouldn't. But people who commented in through the comments this website where we're hosted, uh, and then also through social media and things like that. Uh, David actually worked a lot of those names into the early part of the campaign. Uh, so the last question I have: <laughs> When will Fat Abe make a reappearance? <laughs> He's the best NPC. Did someone, did someone write that question? <laughs> yeah, that was from Abe, uh, who was I think the one I found who was stuck in the door frame. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's, Bacon also, yeah he's the one who complained about uh, Alfred the Weird. So, <laughs> well, you know, jumping off the naming of things, I, I can rattle off some more homages. That uh, these are the ones I can remember that I scribbled down before we started. Uh, in the desert, you find two bodies cuffed together. They are Sir Gaines and Kay McLaughness. This is based on a famous Tales from the Crypt story created by William Gaines. And when adapted for TV, the bandit was played by Kyle McLaughlin. In Bayogate, you investigate the murder of the Benicia Ramsaron and her uh, questionable mother, Patsia. That would be a reference to the unsolved murder surrounding John Bonet and Patricia Ramsey. Seidel's machine has three switches that were BR, UN, and DL. That phonetically spells Brundle, the name of the uh, matter-swapping scientist Jeff Goldblum played in The Fly. Seidel's messenger bird is a raven named Hempel, named after the logician Carl Hempel and his raven paradox. The fairgrounds is full of them, and I'll be brief. Uh, Funhouse Mirror is presented by the Red Triangle, name of the circus gang in Batman Returns. Mother Stein's reading room, obviously Goosebumps author Arl Stein. The Browning Museum of Oddities, Todd Browning directed the 1932 movie Freaks. Bolland Spook House, Brian Bolland illustrated The Killing Joke. O'Hara Hall of Mirrors, named after Orson Welles' character Michael O'Hara in The Lady from Shanghai which has a very famous Hall of Mirror scene. And there are others, but I, I don't want to bore you with, with jokes I wrote that were really just for me. All right, so that's going to do it for the wrap-up show of Season 2 of Roll to Hit. Once again, we appreciate everybody continuing to listen to us and support the show. Uh, we've got a lot more great content coming to you in Season 3, which will be coming out soon. So Yay. we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Paul from Roll to Hit, also known as Sherlock Gnomes. Uh, you can check out a lot of other great podcasts at thecommentist.com. That's the podcast network that Roll to Hit is a part of. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can find all of our podcasts. So, uh, yeah, please check those out, and uh, thank you. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a comment. And I love you. Alfred's going to have a red feather cap and a spiky punch glove to the face. <laughs> Did you just Google MeFit and there was like a Wii app? <laughs> it would, I don't know. Like an Asian girls. What? Look. Uh-huh. It matched it entirely. There was an fourth wall broken. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was just his uh, scimitar. <laughs> <laughs> Sensing well, hostility. Gotta kill him now. <laughs> it just turned out that you guys are the ones who killed Hatterai instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't we discriminate. <laughs> so <Great> justice. <laughs> We're injustice. Oh, I got dibs on the moon blade, by the way. <laughs> oh, you can't even use blades. <laughs> Need to have sworn to have lived a neutral good life or a good neutral life. Mm. Need so. <laughs> you need to win global guts. 
No, I have the. Uh, I can. I can attack as I'm being decapitated. <laughs> okay. A good ninja can do three moves after they're decapitated. Remember when I told you all that I couldn't find my map that I made like a while ago? I, I made a map and I couldn't find it and just abandoned it. For what? For, for this campaign, for like the map oh, to yeah, get it yeah. around. So I was printing out some stuff at work so I could use the printer and I grabbed the only manila folder on my desk which had all the maps I had <laughs> and everything in it. So now with two sessions to go, you'll have a map <laughs> for use only during the original part of the quest. 